Welcome to the Practical Operations Podcast. I'm Brennan Diesendorf. I'm Ken Mink. I'm Jack Neely. And I'm Brandon Peskin. We are here to talk about the practical side of operations work. In this episode, we interview Brandon Peskin, a Net DevOps engineer. We would like to thank 42 Lines for sponsoring this episode. 42 Lines is a DevOps consulting firm specializing in observability, cloud migrations, reliability, cost control, security practices, and team mentoring. Does your monitoring stack provide the business with quality alerting and key performance indicators? Find out how with 42lines.net. So, yeah, uh, Brandon Peskin, um, I totally made up the whole net DevOps engineer bit. Yeah. Tell us who you are. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it, it's kind of a, uh, a a long story of how both of those are true, but also um, I started off in a small joint, and you know, at a small joint, you wear many hats, and so... Of course, the office needed connectivity, and the we needed connectivity to our data centers. And uh, essentially, anyone who had the word tech or operations in their title was also responsible for IT, corporate connectivity, etc. Um, going further back than that, of course, it starts off at a small ISP, where I went from you know making sure people can get on dial-up to making sure people can get on T1s and DSL to then, you know, managing the networks that connect all of that together and, and branching out from there. Um, the, the, I, I guess what I'm saying is I it was, it was sort of a dual thing. And of course at that ISP, there was, you know, sysadmin work to do. There was a web server to maintain, a mail server to maintain, a radius server, all of those things. And so I got my start early when somebody, a single point of failure or multiple single points of failures or successes, however you want to measure it, uh, we're responsible for both the network and the, you know, the demons, the servers, the everything in between back when we were still called sysadmins. I still like being called a sysadmin. Yeah, yeah I use that yeah. term. A lot of folks who work in this, on, on the operations space or on the, the engineering space are not super comfortable doing networking stuff. And so it's interesting to see your your career path that brings you up that branch. And yeah, I get, you know, being like the, one or two people in a small organization and you kind of wear a lot of hats and you end up doing a lot of different things. And I've gotten my hands dirty with a bit of networking, but like most of my, my peers, as I've sort of climbed the ladder and got more experience, I really ended up stepping away from the network side of things because it's, it was one of the first sort of services that was, that was completely managed as a platform for you. Yes, yes, of course. And and as as we get further away into infrastructure as code and into the cloud, you know, the everything is abstracted. Where the network is abstracted first, you know, you had a data center and maybe you had a data center team responsible for the network and that connectivity. Uh, you may have been responsible for imaging the servers on that network. You never really saw how the bits went from point A to point B, but you know it was there. Um, the flip side of that is that I've been at organizations where the network engineering team has been subpar and I have found myself, uh, you know, okay, my application is broken between my two servers. You can't tell me why. So let's step through it together until we find it. Uh, and then it ends up being, you know, a bad ASIC and a switch or there's a crimped cable or a fiber is leaking lights or any number of things. Um, I've been generally interested in it over the years. Uh, and so I've kept my, my knowledge going typically in small contracts or typically in, you know, 
somebody is in that boat. Hey, look, we have a team of sysadmins. We know nothing about the network. The guy rage crit a month ago. Can someone come in for a month and help us clean up? And so that's that's where it kind of filled in the gaps and kept it you know kept it current all of those years. I don't. I don't think the network the network engineer, just the same as the sysadmin, is kind of going the way of the dodo, uh, depending on where you look at it uh, or how you look at it. So the network engineer on the corporate side, there's always going to be people connecting Wi-Fi from their laptops, their their desktops, and whatever in a corporate environment. You're always going to need to get the the uh, user from point A to point B. But in a production environment, as we get more into the cloud and and less in, in in places like you know high performance computing and things like that are exceptions to the rule but the more we get into the cloud it's like the sysadmin the more that is masqueraded you don't need to worry about it the only thing you need to worry about is you know running out of ip addresses or making sure you've got enough load balancers to cover what you need to do so it's it's not gone in some regards respects it's not gone but in other respects it's gone but different so in the sysadmin path, at least in my experience, the number of positions went down over the years, but the pay steadily went up as the specialization increased and the need to be able to think about the problems as infrastructure as code. How do we track and, and coordinate and roll these things forward and and those sides of things? And it sounds like the networking side of things is pretty much the same, except you have the added joy, we'll say, of actually having to touch physical pieces of cable occasionally. Yeah, yeah. Um, and and it, there's still an inherent need for networking. And that is, of course, when a business needs to move out of their data center or out of their server room in the basement of their building to the cloud, right? There is a real need to shovel that data from on-prem to, uh, to the cloud. And we used to not be able to do that. I mean, that was just something completely unheard of. You know, when you move data centers, uh, if you were changing vendors, chances are you didn't have a direct wire between, and if you're changing geolocations too, you didn't have a direct wire between those data centers. And so- And the vendors didn't want to work with each other because yeah. that meant less lock-in. Exactly. And so you had maybe a petabyte worth of data inside of, um, you know, inside of Equinix or one of those major carriers, and you had you know 100 cabinets or 200 cabinets or whatever. Getting, you know, when the business relationship went bad with that data center provider, you had to figure out a way to move your- stuff and it was painful and over the internet um that that i think one of the the um flips or one of the upsides to the cloud is you know google microsoft and i guess to some degree ibm oracle but also amazon um have gone the extra mile to make sure that they can facilitate you and whatever by whatever means necessary to get that data out of your on-prem including obviously something like amazon snowflake where they ship you a device and you copy it and send it over, you know, carrier pigeon. I get the whole uh, sneaker net, and that makes sense to me. But it, it really wasn't until we worked together at a later point in time that I really realized that that sort of facilitation that Google and Amazon and Azure are is doing is, yeah, letting you direct connect to their network. Yes, yes, yes. Um, and that can happen by in multiple ways. Um, fortunately, where we worked together, uh, the Google Edge was in the same, either in the same data center park, or it was dark fibered to where we need to go. And so we could complete the circuit that way. Uh, but beyond that, though, if we hadn't, we would have had to then enlist the help of somebody in a city somewhere like Zayo who could provide dark fiber between data center A and data center B. And then that, of course, the the uh, 
um, the costs go up exponentially uh, when when that happens as well. I think you just explained like a, a, a black market or something. Kind of, kind <laughs> of. In, um, in the early 2000s, I was working for a small college in North Carolina. And this is my last real foray into doing direct physical networking stuff. And we had looked at getting a piece of or set of fiber run from the campus to the local point of presence the ISP maintained. Because if we could get the fiber to them, we had crazy good internet. And otherwise, it was going to be pretty terrible. But the, yes. the expense per foot to go, you know, three or four miles was just insane. And we, we abandoned yes. the project pretty quickly because... It, it wasn't going to be cost effective. It really couldn't justify itself. Yeah, I mean, and, and a lot of a lot of that comes down to unions and cable, you know, cable and wiring unions. When you've got to roll a jackhammer and a crew out and dig up the street and file permits and file with the city and do this and do that, if there's no conduit, uh, you, you're done. You've you've got a you've, obviously you've got all of those construction costs. Then you're paying a union crew, you know, for three or four days to dig up the street. You're paying. Uh, uh, a, a basically a paving company to, to break up the street. You're paying uh, a cable, you know, a cable workers union of some sort to lay the, roll the truck out, lay the fiber, and then a, another crew to re-asphalt the street, patch the street, pave the street. And so you, it, it, it's quickly, even for a mile, it could get over a million dollars very quickly. Um, sometimes you're fortunate and uh, the local utility lets fiber optic uh, and lets telco use their right of way in their conduits where where their you know where their you know large electrical cables travel underground, but that's kind of far and few in between. It's more so in a big city where you find that versus you know somewhere rural. Uh, yeah, it, it's it's just expensive. Yeah, our, our quote yeah. wasn't in the millions, but it was in the hundreds of thousands, and it was very yeah. quickly deemed to be not pursuable. Yeah, yeah, and I've even gone as far as when. When microwave started taking off in the early 2000s, uh, I had to go from one building to another. They were across the parking lot from each other, but there was no direct conduit. There was no path directly, um, even from the street. If we, we figured out if we could you know, follow the local carrier, I think it was Pacific Bell at that time, follow the carrier out to the street, follow their conduit out and then in, it still wasn't effective. So we ended up setting a, up a microwave link um, it was something ridiculous, like 40 or 45 megabits, but it was 40 or 45 megabits we didn't have otherwise. And, and so we've done things like that. Um, I worked for a, I did some contracting for a company that had leased space from NASA here in California uh, at the NASA Ames Research Center. And NASA owned every conduit and everything all the way down to the dirt. And if you struck oil on NASA's property, they own that too. And so you had to pay. Yeah, I'm serious. I'm serious. And so NASA had had uh, had this chokehold on those conduits. It had to be their guys, their crew, their terms. And so just to get an Internet circuit in there from CenturyLink was, you know, the CenturyLink circuit was something ridiculously great. It was, you know, a thousand bucks a month for a gigabit. Um, and at that time, that was great. But then they can only deliver it to the outskirts of the facility. And then you had to use NASA's guys to loop it in. And NASA's guys had multiple fiber taps per building and all this stuff. But you ended up paying an administration fee to NASA to have that circuit double or triple the cost of the actual circuit. And so there's, there's been you know right-of-way things and, and challenges like that. In addition to the physical challenges over the years of being able to get that wire where you needed to go. Are they making sure the manhole covers aren't, you know, leaking and the, the pops aren't full of rain and 
Yes, yes. Yeah, all kinds and, of and fun things. Sometimes that's unavoidable, but there's some degree of responsibility there. You know, if somebody's extorting you to run fiber, it's ultimately their responsibility when something happens to it, you know, and that can be relieving. I know from, as you mentioned, that we all worked together once before and, and, you know, I've been at this 30 plus years and I honestly had no idea some of the things you were talking about as you were getting all of our circuits set up. And it was both impressive and then disconcerting that I was that clueless, but it was impressive what you were accomplishing, getting all these vendors connected up together to be able to move our data. And on yeah, top of yeah. that, some of those circuits were temporary for migration purposes. Yeah, correct. Correct. There was a heavy investment temporarily. Um, it was it started with quantity, right? It came down to sitting down with everybody and understanding how much data has to move and how quickly does it have to move. And then we realized we, I, whoever realized from that point that it wasn't going to be a single 10 gigabit wire and we were going to do this and, and everything was going to be grand. No, the, <laughs> the, the data migration was method was not finalized. And so it could have gone one way or another. The numbers and forecasts were consistently being revised. And, and finally I said, okay, we're, we'll start with this. Um, and then for redundancy purposes, because apparently this is going to be an integral link to, uh, um, integral link to the business and the business is going to be straddling both the data center and the cloud. This needs to be, you know, as reliable as possible. So we should order two in two regions and, 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 and it just came down to what, what the way that it worked was no different than me saying I'm in this co-located facility and you're out of space. So I need to install another presence in one of your other facilities, maybe across town, maybe across the street. And then the two facilities aren't connected by that data center vendor. You have to use a third party and then tie it all together. And so it was very similar to that. However, the automated way that the cloud companies work, there's no Cisco routers sitting on the edge of, of GCP or Amazon. It's their own, their own rolled, very automated setup and then once you understand how to play ball with that and then it's a matter of telling your vendor whoever they may be whether it's you know equinix connecting up the wires or or your data center vendor whoever it is um telling them this is how the cloud works this is what your router needs to do let's make it happen so yeah there is there was a little bit of a learning curve there because there's the cloud you know jeff bezos and larry page is have taken the 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 stops out of the the human toil, some of the human toil that you used to have going data center to data center, you know, that um, everything is scripted, the turn up is scripted, as long as somebody physically connects it to Google, as long as you order it in Google system, Google automatically allocates the ports on their switches and patch panels. Uh, and then uh, all of that's automated. So you're not working with an, a human to go out there and look to see which patch panel port is free and then issue the letter of agency so that you can plug into that. All of that stuff is automated. And so that that in itself, even though it was a long time to get everything going because of external factors, um, once we physically got connected to Google or connected to Amazon, it was smooth sailing from there on because there's no humans. They're, 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 the the um, cloud providers um, set this up so you don't interface with a human at all to plug in. It's completely automated. You're, most of your headache is with you know, who you've got currently and, and telling them, hey, look, we need this wire. It's really interesting because part of the, I, I've done a bunch of the AWS certification exam things. 
And in that process, there are questions about Direct Connect and how do you set things up? And they acknowledge that a lot of the people who are taking these taking these tests will have never executed a Direct Connect order, ever. They'll have used Direct yes. Connect and they'll have read the paperwork about what are you supposed to do? But I'm one of those people that learns best by mechanically doing a thing and yes. never having been able to say, yes, I've issued the letters and all of the other pieces to actually get Direct Connect working. It makes me feel really weird about having a certification that includes things like Direct Connect in it. Yeah, yeah. And it's it's ridiculously simple on the cloud provider side, as I said, it's, but it's understanding those components. Um, you know, you're... Um, most of the challenge is getting the wire to Amazon or getting the wire to Google. Once you overcome those challenges, then it's a pretty much a straight shot. Um, but there, there are some, there are some gotchas. And the other thing that that's really challenging is of course, you think about this at scale and the providers that is Amazon and Google typically won't talk to you unless you're bringing in 10 gigabits or more. Um, if there is the possibility that you're bringing in less than that, they typically don't work with you. They refer you to a partner. They have a partner interconnect service or a partner direct connect service. And you then interface with that partner. It's a third party that has, you know, a terabit worth of circuits connected to Amazon or Google. Uh, and then you place a gigabit or two gigabits or four gigabits or whatever you need with them. Uh, and so all of this really comes down to the not having the need when going into this, the original plan, when we set this up was we were going to have to buy a Cisco router or two or four, and we were going to have to put those in the data center that Google and Amazon had in, or, you know, Google or Amazon had in common with us somewhere in the United States. And then, you know, that was $250,000 in gear that would be used for 18 months. Uh, then it was, you know, you got a lease a cabinet from that data center provider. That's 15 or 1600 bucks a month at bare minimum, again, for 18 months and all of these things. And finally, once we realized um, geographically, there was four points in the United States where that we could hook up to them directly with just a cross connect. And even if that didn't work, we could use a third party company uh, that certainly simplified it. I mean, so there really was zero equipment investment in doing this. It was all cross connects. It was all saying, I'm going to go from our data center presence to the Google edge cage or the Amazon cage and connect it up. Conversely, um, without a data center, presence, you could still do the same thing in some data centers. You can say, I'm not in this data center, but I need to plug in Google to Amazon. Let's say I'm migrating from one to the other. Some data center providers won't let you do that because, um, you know, they, they really say, hey, you know, you really have to have a presence in this data center. You have to have a relationship with us for us to even talk to you. But um, some of them are flexible in that regard. Yeah. I remember from when this was happening, you also ran into lots of issues with address spaces. Yes, yes, yes. We found that uh, that our private address space that was allocated to the company for all of the servers was in the main routing table with our provider. And so we had this grand scheme to do what we needed to do and it couldn't happen. They had to um, physically isolate our entire infrastructure into this, a thing called a VRF and a VRF for, for all intents and purposes of people listening is like a, 
a Docker container for your network. It's completely isolated, but you have a full <laughs> set of full full set of commands. You it's said the word. Of, yes, yeah. It's a it's a container. It's a it's a virtual machine for your your router for your router your your network infrastructure. And so it's a VPC, it's, except you're not in the cloud. Exactly. That's exactly what it is. And so um, doing that was a challenge because then you have to do that hot. You're doing that with live servers, serving live service, and you have to touch every single router on the network to do it. Um, and so that Band-Aid had to be ripped off before we could even consider uh, bringing in another network uh, or connecting another network because of the, the way that it worked. It's kind of baffling too, because there was already direct connectivity to AWS when this whole thing started. And it came down to any time we needed to bring in a new AWS VPC, we had to first talk to corporate corporate IT to make sure that there was no overlap then with them, then open a ticket with our vendor and tell them, hey, we want to use this network. It doesn't overlap with IT. Does it overlap with you? And sometimes the answer was yes. And then we'd have to you know, peel that back and peel that back and peel that back until we found a common address space that worked. And so getting a VPC and Amazon connected to the on-prem data center took a month or two months or 90 days sometimes because of all of the rhetoric um, and rigor all surrounded surrounding you know IP address management. Um, so ripping the bandaid off and going with that VRF was was a mandatory thing, but it also gave flexibility later on because we were able to do things to manipulate our routing policies and and, and handle redundancy in a way that we couldn't have, have even if we didn't go down that that rabbit hole with VRF. And so it all kind of worked out in the end, uh, but it was extremely painful. And just for kicks and grins, the, the night we ripped the Band-Aid off, the entire visibility team was at one of the Monitorama conferences. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so we had one of our guys in a plane trying to fly to the office. The rest of us were in a hotel on hotel Wi-Fi trying to do our thing. <laughs> yeah, and, and for I think for, for, for Brendan, that was the second Monitorama that you had a disaster, right? The, there was a previous mm -hmm. one where you were in the hotel until four o'clock in the morning. Yeah, the, the previous one is oh. when the the underground power main caught fire, like six blocks south of the venue, and so the entire city of Portland was without power. And just as I had been getting to a point of debugging the logging infrastructure, power for the city goes out, which means that I'm now tethering to my phone. I have my laptop's battery and my phone's battery, and that's it. And, so and power until... for the conference venue, might I add. Well, yes, but my There's particular... much lore about this outage. <laughs> my particular issue was that I was working until 3 or 4 in the morning. I got a couple hours of sleep without air conditioning either. I then, as soon as I could in the morning, I went over to a Starbucks where they had power and plugged everything back in and got back to work. Um, and I was like, oh, the next year, it'll be better. It'll be better this year. And of course, yeah. that year we also had a major outage that was painful and... Um, yeah, I, I, I'd rather not repeat that on conference time. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And that's that's usually how it works, right? Or, you know, it's and, and sometimes there's something to be said about, you know, it being on conference time versus, you know, vacation. You know, there's nothing like sitting on a beach somewhere and getting the we don't know what to do. Please help us Obi-Wan sort of call or text and ruining your vacation. Right? So there, there's a reason that my vacations now involve camping where I can't help people. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. 
Yeah, yeah, he, just he fly to... an airplane over and parachute down a sat phone and. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. For a while there with my wife, it was what country can we go to where the cell phone doesn't work, right? You know, yeah. So Brandon, part of your gig have been uh, running your own consulting firm. Yes. Um, how, how, how does your experience with doing running your own consulting firm kind of go? Uh, I know a bunch of us have sort of, you know, uh, thrown around, uh, hanging out our own shingle and sort of doing our own thing. And we don't at this point in time and seems much less stress. But um, tell us what it's really like out there, man. Well, originally, the whole premise of my own consulting firm was I was working for an employer. I was contracting for an employer I had left five or six years before then. Um, and I was a part-time contractor and thinking to myself, God, I could do this better than them. You know? <laughs> the reality yeah. of the situation, you know, everyone can take a vacation and no one needs to call anybody. But when I take a vacation, even though I'm a part-time contractor, they're still calling me all the time. And so that's how it started. And then talking about how I kept up with my networking chops, that's kind of where that led to. It became a vector of, of education um, to some degree. It came a, became a vector of um, you know, maybe where I'm working, I don't have time to do these experiments inside of a data center or do, do this, these, this testing inside of a data center or experiment with this technology inside of a data center. And so in reality, in the beginning, although it's not that way now, uh, the consulting gig became this, you know, how do I keep my feet wet? How do I keep my, uh, how do I stay relevant? Uh, how do I, you know, and so I, you know, and then of course, how do I break the monotony of doing the same thing over and over again? in, in uh, nine to five. And so maybe there's things that I want to experience as a contractor where I work, I do a project that's maybe 30 hours in a month and I never touch it again. And so, um, it's, uh, that's how it started and it's morphed into, um, sort of this concept. I, I live far away from the Metro area where the jobs are offered. Um, uh, and it, it morphed into a, if I do this enough and have enough experience with this and I can retain enough customers, um, I don't have to commute to a nine to five, uh, anymore. And so, um, I'm it's, all about uh, the not commuting to a nine to five. Yeah. Yeah. And so really, and then of course, while I'm in the middle of all of this in 2009, 2010, of course, uh, 42 lines begins taking off and, uh, you know, it's really the, a very similar concept to what I wanted to do. Um, but the realities of me being an individual with limited funds and having to maintain health insurance and everything else, you know, I really just, I never jumped, I never walked the plank and, and jumped in head first and, and did it full time. Um, I think with this new era, which I think you mentioned uh, prior to the, to the, to the, to the, to the meeting here that you wanted to talk about, I think in this new era, there may be some opportunities to expand that hopefully. Um, but yeah, essentially what it, what it looks like on paper is it's a, you, I have a full-time job so I can maintain health benefits and then I run a full-time business. Um, I usually position things where my one side or the other is in another time zone. So maybe I'm working with a group overseas on one side uh, and then working with a group in the United States on the other so nice. that <laughs> I don't have this overlap of meetings every day, you know, you know, nine, you know, nine to five, you're, you're double booked 
customer A wants to meet with you and employer employer wants to meet with you, customer B wants to meet with you and employer A wants to meet with you. And you're, you're finding this, finding this balance. And so that, that's kind of really what, how that, how that uh, plays out. I don't, I don't like it. I'm working way harder than I should have to, but you know, when you look at the big picture of it, um, also you, uh, sometimes don't due to financial circumstances and family circumstances, you know, taking care of your elderly parents and things like that. You sometimes realize it doesn't matter how much money you make, you will find a way to commit some large chunk of it to something and then you're stuck doing it. Right. And that's kind of, kind of where I am now where it's like, you know, you, you know, I opened this brave new horizon of, uh, of, of revenue generation. And the reality of the situation is that I'm, we're a double income household, except both incomes are coming from me and none from my wife. Right. And so, uh, um, not to falter for that, but that, that's really what it, what it is. And so, uh, yeah, it's, it's challenging. And then trying to stay relevant, uh, at the same time, you close your eyes and you open your eyes six months later. And now the new latest, greatest thing is Kubernetes. They don't want to talk to you unless you have Kubernetes experience. They don't want to talk to you unless you have go experience. They don't want to talk to you. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, and we're and, familiar with that. Yeah, and and life just passes you by, and there's a huge difference for me personally in being forced to learn something to stay relevant and learning something because I it's interesting to me and seeing how the industry shifts. And so, finding this, you know, this is practical operations. You're finding the practical use cases to do these very specific things that these companies that have a software as a service or platform as a service want is is challenging so i I switched jobs recently and part of what we do is we run a lot of workloads very heavily in as a software service in kubernetes environments and i had very little practical kubernetes experience i had a lot of kind of theory but i'd never done a lot of the mechanical side of it and that was really intimidating coming up to speed yeah yeah and then to throw the works to throw the wrench into the works even further Talking about network, talking about a sysadmin, Google and Amazon both have a managed Kubernetes service. You don't look at anything under the hood. You launch the the pool nodes and boom, you've got a cluster. But you, you know, still you need to configure your jobs and debug them and understand how oh, and yeah. why they fail. And there's still a lot of, of work to, to handle auto scaling yeah. and yeah. upgrades. Oh, yeah. You would think because, you know, it's EKS and it's Amazon, you know, upgrade is just push the button, right? You'd be wrong. <laughs> Yes, yes, but you're not you're not managing those situations where, sorry, that pod can't go here because we don't have enough RAM, or that pod can't go here because we don't have enough IP addresses. And so, um, there's there's yeah there's there's while I, I I guess we're both right in the sense that a lot of the toil is taken away by the managed Kubernetes service, but at the same time, new toil is invented because of the nuances of the cloud provider auto-scaling, managed interest groups, et cetera. So yeah, I guess you have a point there. And it's one thing to to find some on-the-side hustling gigs on the internet um, for some random IT assistance. And it's another thing altogether to be able to find some consulting gigs that keep you current in, in up-and-coming technologies like Go and Kubernetes and that sort of thing. Yeah. Especially yeah. when you're doing it on the side. And that's that's some of the sauce that I haven't found. Yeah, and in, in the particular case where we worked together, you know, I got a phone call and uh, the individual said, look, um, they have a big networking project coming up. They're going to migrate to the cloud. 
we need to get a handle on this and I need to get someone in there that I can, you know, I can count on to get it done and know the nuances and know the, know enough to be able to take care of some of the political things that come around that. And some of the, the, the concerns that people don't think about, you know, when you've got a company full of software engineers, the shipping, the product is, is the, is the, the number one goal. Um, and attention to uh, resource consumption, whether that's disk or uh, bandwidth, or you know some of the visibility things that that uh, that your team had challenges with, is just just really was a not my problem attitude by many departments, and you had to rationalize that to the company and say, look, I understand it's not their problem, but it's going to be a hundred thousand dollars a month, or it's going to be forty thousand dollars a month, or you're going to be paying Google double or Amazon double the cost for the direct connects because mathematically you need to move four petabytes of data and you need to do it inside of 30 days. That's not going to happen on a single 10 gig connection or any number of excuses or, or data points that say that are, that are, that are around that, that, that people just don't understand over time. I mean, and, and that's, that's something that I've noticed as we, in the DevOps world, just the units of measure, like the fundamental units of measure, like I have a, per, a petabyte or I have a terabyte, I need to transfer that to, from point A to point B. I don't know how long that's going to take. And, and even knowing the speed of the medium, nobody knows these, these things that we used to, you know, we used to have ISDN lines and DSL lines where we had to move some, some gamut of data and it still does nothing. It still does nothing. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And so it's, it's, it's a challenge. Um, but that, that's a, that's a real thing. And so that, that, that was what it was. I, I had a track record of doing that to the individuals that uh, brought us all together or for the individuals that brought us all together. And that, you know, I was in, installed at that capacity. Um, and it turned out to be much more because much, much more than just, you know, connecting a wire from data center to, to the cloud, because there were all of these other nuances. There was all of these use cases. There was no, you, you come down to, uh, what it looked like in the data center and everything was open to everything and nobody could tell anybody what devices and services connect to what devices and services. And so there's this enigma, an infinite enigma of, I don't know what this machine does. I don't know what it connects to. I don't know what services depend on it. And to be able to rationalize that in the cloud with firewall rules so that that doesn't happen for, you know, PCI compliance or any number of, you know, uh, compliance and auditing reasons is, is a huge challenge and, and getting people to understand that connectivity is not a right. Connectivity is not a right inside of a network, you know, just because you have a database, it doesn't mean that everything should be connecting to it. Even, you know, if they'll never connect to it, you need that implicit, you know, implicit deny in there that says, you know, you don't get permission unless you ask for it. And there was a huge huge learning curve for the individuals that write these applications and you know what do you mean i just can't connect to anything well no you have to we have to document this we have to know that if there's a network failure or there's a problem or there's whatever we need to know that request path we need to understand that from an impact perspective and that was there was a huge thing uh politically and and uh a huge human uh, uh huge human um uh, information campaign to to get that off the ground on a slightly different note though now that COVID's just raging and everybody has been kicked out of their offices 
you know, the common denominator there is my network is different. And you've got everybody coming in from outside rather than sitting at a desk in a, you know, ostensibly secured network. You know, how much does that hit you and what have you had to deal with? So fortunately, me directly, not much, but my peers and colleagues a lot. And so when you started opening the hood on some companies, VPN implementations, um, they had an they had a tunnel everything uh, configuration. And what that meant is any when you connect to the corporate VPN, all of your traffic passes through that tunnel from your workstation, whether you're browsing Reddit or you're watching YouTube, all of that traffic is routed through that VPN. And some of us use the VPNs and things like that to, you know, masquerade our, you know, our locations and things like that. But the immediate thing that had to happen was people had to take Zoom and BlueJeans and Teams and all of the video collaboration software and throw that out of the VPN tunnels. And doing that made a massive difference in everybody's scalability concerns, you know, because when everything switched to Zoom uh, to BlueJeans and to Toothpaste and things like that, you, you figure that a standard Zoom meeting with four people or BlueJeans meeting or, or Skype meeting with four people with video going is probably somewhere around 15 or 16 megabits. Um, multiply that by managers having meeting rooms open all day as their open door policy. Multiply that by the number of conference rooms so suddenly not in use in the office and you saturate the corporate connectivity rapidly. And so... Um, the first thing that seemed to happen across the organ, uh, across the industry was, you know, we need to take, we need to take the video conferencing out of the tunnel. We need to, then the second, the second step on that ladder was Outlook. And so um, off, Office 365, uh, most, most organizations, with the exception of some that still run on-prem exchange and things, most organizations have, you know, Outlook in the cloud or Office 365 or Google. Um, the second thing was to take that out because, uh, you know, people's Word docs and Excel and their Outlook with their, you know, nobody deletes anything out of their inbox and has to index that whole inbox over the wire. Taking that out of the tunnel was the next logical step. And then companies really figured out after all of that was said and done and people realized that there was no no need to have access to file servers and printers uh, on-prem, it came down to... to do we, do we really need the VPN anymore? And so companies immediately started rolling out Duo Connect. They started rolling out um, Zen. They started, you know, with when you've got a managed device system, you can roll out certificates on the fly to all of the devices that are managed by the company. And so then it came down to, do we really need the VPN at all? What is the reason that they're connecting into corporate? And then it's been this space race since then to, can we do away with the VPN entirely by using two-factor authentication on all of our stuff in the public. And then there's been this run-up on Okta, there's been this run-up on Duo and all of these two-factor authentication systems to, to make all of these services exposed. Now, some companies went the opposite way. Some companies decided that we're gonna move our, you know, our JIRA, our Confluence, our whatever, behind a VPN instead of to the public for security reasons. But on the other hand, you know, immediately when this came down, uh, Atlassian's sales force just hit the ground running, trying to move people to Jira Cloud, to Confluence Cloud, move everything to the Cloud Cloud Cloud. And now I'm seeing companies that are just going to completely do away with their VPN. There are companies where unless you're somebody like us who needs an SSH terminal into a data center where you physically have to connect to the company's network to do so, 
your standard sales guy, your standard marketing person, your standard person that's working in Excel all day or in Outlook all day doesn't need the VPN at all. And so there's this now natural selection of how much of our workforce can we get dump off the VPN? How much of our workforce does, doesn't need to go through corporate? Now, then that presents other challenges because how do you know that that person isn't using the company property for personal reasons or personal nefarious <laughs> reasons, as I'm sure you guys have seen stories and videos uh, as time goes on where people have this complete lack of separating their personal habits from their work habits in, in their, in their, you know, in their homes. And so I still can't um, believe people do that crap. I just cannot yeah. understand how yeah. people use a work yeah. machine for personal anything. Yeah. 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 Or just, yeah. And, and it's just, it just blows my mind. I mean, I, I don't, it, but it, it happens that just people just not grasping the concept of, you know, it's okay to leave the meeting to take a bathroom break. It's okay to leave the meeting to, to do what you got to do. You're a human being. You're allowed to bet, you know, you're allowed these things. This is in kindergarten where you have to ask. And so you see, you saw a lot of this. There's a lot of parody out there around people, you know, people, you know, taking their laptops to the bathroom or their phones to the bathroom. Or uh, there was a guy that set up a silhouette of him right self right in front of the camera, uh, acting like he's paying attention and he's sitting behind it in a hammock drinking a beer. And then the wind blows and it blows the silhouette over and there he is drinking a beer, you know, in the hammock in his <laughs> office, right? And so it's, 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 there are people that it, it kind of goes to the thing about it. When you look at work at home up until now, there's always been some bad apple that spoils the bunch. There's been some bad apple that goes off the reservation, goes rogue. You think he's at his computer or she's at her computer. They're out shopping. They're playing with their kids. They're at the park. There's been somebody that's abused the privilege until now. Well, now you have everybody there. There's no privilege to abuse because it's now mandatory. And so people just, when you look at the statistics, you look at the managers reporting in the productivity, everybody, some people seem to be less, far less productive at home, whether that's because of interrupts or distractions or whatever. And then there's some people that this is their finest hour. There are some people when you look at um, just even the, in the open source community, you look at the things that the release trains for even the Linux kernel. You look at how fast the Linux kernel went through an update during this process, it's record time. Like the open source community is now at home. They've got their Linux kernel development workstation next to their, you know, their workstation for their employer. And there's been record development because these people aren't commuting. They're not spending these resources, you know, extra resource, human resources being, you know, tired and commuting and traffic and things like that. So, um, as it pertains to um, VPNs and strains like that, again, uh, there was an initial strain and then we people quickly wised up. I mean, there's there's nothing like the I sitting down with the CTO and saying, half the workforce can't log in, half the workforce is not working today because we don't have enough capacity. And so it's been this real quick true up of resources. Now, when you talk to other people in the industries out there, places where there was no laptops, those guys really took the hit. And so you have these sales boiler rooms where they're all in workstations or a manufacturing plant where they all have workstations, no laptops, no off-prem. And, uh, you know, I talked to some friends of mine who are uh, working for the Department of Energy and the Department of Defense and the security clearance required stuff suddenly just grinds to a halt because they can't secure the home environment. You can't secure the home Comcast connection or the home broadband connection uh, 
to the way that you could secure the network on-prem at the facility. And so there's been some challenges there too. So it's a, it's a hodgepodge of everything. Some, some quickly rose to the, to the challenge. Others uh, had to basically box up computers and send it home with individuals. And then others still, um, due to security requirements, have had a challenge getting uh, sharing sensitive information and getting work done on sensitive uh, components of their, of their infrastructure. That's amazing. So a couple of weeks ago, we had um, a former boss of mine and a friend of mine, Ashi Sheth, on to talk about the, procure- the procurement chain of LinkedIn switching to remote everywhere all the time and the global supply chain mess that it took to find the right kind of monitors and the right kind of chairs and the right kind of things as they, they tried to shift their workforce remote and make them all productive. And this dovetails nicely into that. So listeners, if you didn't pick it up, um, I'll put a link in the show notes for this where we talked to Ashi on April 24th about um, preparing LinkedIn to move to an entirely remote workforce. And it was similarly interesting. And Brendan, I wanted to thank you again for um, for joining us. It's been Absolutely. A, a pleasure to talk to you. And it's always awesome to hear the, the networking perspective of these things. I... I use the network and I learned TCP dump years ago and those kinds of things. And I can find DHCP servers in the network, but I never really went that deep. And I'm always in awe of the people who did. Sometimes it's a necessity, right? You know, like I said, it, when you're small, it's, well, the network's got a problem. Well, I'm trying to debug the application. Well, you also need to go look at the network because the application is flooding the network or any number of things where um, you have to sit down and trace the request path end to end. You know, what is it doing? Where is it going? Why is it doing it? Um, and you, you learn a lot very quickly about technical debt when you do that. You know, you look at, <laughs> you realize, hey, um, this service never got shut off and things are still connecting to it. Or, uh, hey, this uh, configuration management never got updated. We left that data center six months ago and there's things still querying IP addresses in that data center. You know, you, you quickly lift the hood and see how the, you know, the, you know, the, the what's going on under the hood. And, and you quickly realize uh, how sloppy things can get when, as we shift more to an application layer centric or an application support centric sort of thing. And we, you know, diverge from cabling up racks and running fiber and installing servers. Right. Also quickly, Brendan, if you, if you wanted to plug your consulting agency, you're more than welcome to, I'm not going to force you to though. Oh, no, I'll go ahead and pass. I'm sure I'll be a guest. I hope I'm going to be a guest in the future, and I'll, I'll do a plug then. Okay. Yeah, we'll have <laughs> you back. Yeah, this was awesome. And with that, please take the time to rate the show in Overcast, Apple Podcast, or your favorite podcast directory. It's the best way for new listeners to find us. Additionally, we welcome feedback about shows you've recorded or topics you'd like us to cover. Leave us a comment on the website at operations.fm. Send us your thoughts on email, feedback at operations.fm or use at Operations FM on Twitter. Please visit our sponsor at 42lines.net and ask about their visibility and DevOps services. And that wraps it up for this episode of the Practical Operations Podcast. I'm Brendan Diesendorf. I'm Ken Mink. I'm Jack Neely. And I'm Brandon Peskin. Thanks, and good night. I don't have any UDP jokes left.